Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to season two, episode four of Future Proofing Now, the webcast from Future Proofing Next. Today, we'll talk about scaling growth and innovation, and we'll get started in about two minutes. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and we are about to do a webcast, season two, episode four of Future Proofing Now, the webcast from Future Proofing Next. Today we'll talk about scaling growth and innovation, and we'll get started in a couple of minutes. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, and welcome to Scaling Growth and Innovation, the webcast, season two, episode four. And today we'll be talking about scaling growth and innovation. And we'll get started in about one minute. Okay, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to Scaling Growth and Innovation, the webcast from Future Proofing Next. We call it Future Proofing Now. And today I'll be joined by my collaborator and co-host, Sean Moffitt, and we're both from Future Proofing Next. And our guest today will be Kent Lawson and Ann Hargraves and Stina Jorgensen and Jed Schneiderman. And I'd also like to welcome the uh, community manager who's behind the scenes doing all things magical to make this work logistically, Joanne, who is our community manager. And I will kick off with talking to Sean. And the first thing that we'll do is set the tone. Today we'll be talking about questions like, how do you really get innovation to achieve corporate scale? And we're all excited because we have a book coming out, Future Proofing Next, the future beyond innovation. And Sean and I have been working for years uh, to try to dig into the differences between innovation at early stage and innovation at scale. Innovation within startups, innovation within corporations, and individual initiatives at corporations that grow, but then they never really achieve what we call escape velocity. So what are these questions? And so I'll start with the question I've been asking people for years, which is, if you rubber band together a lot of jet skis, you know, these individual initiatives within a company, and you have open innovation and all of these challenge statements and all of these wonderful projects going on in a company, do you automatically get scale? You know, does something that, that has a lot of speed in a small scale turn into a large scale project within a company? And another question is, you know, if you've got an early stage initiative within a company, will it automatically achieve escape velocity? Like what are the things that change you from it's going really great in pilot to, you know, this is gonna be the next big thing. And one of the books that inspired us today is uh, a, a set of questions around what Mark Benioff said in his book, Trailblazer. And we're doing a bit of an homage to the way that Mark has come out, come out in, 
around the topic of growth, because at the same time that you can think from a purely capitalistic perspective about growth, you can also think about the other side of things, you know, like, and so he says that you have to think about growth in terms of companies and the people who lead them can no longer afford to separate business objectives from social issues surrounding them. They can no longer view their mission as a set of binary choices, growing versus giving back, making a profit versus promoting the public good, innovating versus making the world a better place. And this book, Trailblazer, and Mark Benioff's words like this have also inspired us because we understand that the other dimension of growth is that maybe that's not the only metric. And so I'd like to also talk about something we talked about last time. We've got some some backdrop from the book Blitzscaling, which is another way that people think about growth. And Sean will talk to us in a minute about how people talk about growth and, and, and achieving escape velocity. And there's a lot of rules, you know, for Blitzscaling. Maybe it's for a startup, but, you know, you have to be able to embrace chaos. You have to let some fires burn. You have to raise too much money. So from a startup perspective, this might be brilliant. But the question will be for our guests, is this what works in corporations? And if not, why not? So, Sean, to you, we are uh, both really curious about what really works. We are interested in the practitioner's perspective, especially from a corporation's perspective. So, tell us about the stats and, and what your thoughts are to frame this conversation today. Yeah, I thought I'd throw a few little dots before this discussion because I think, um, I think this was evaluated as being our third most popular topic a few webinars ago. We asked our audience um, just what they wanted to hear. This was very high up, but you know, certainly based on what I've seen in a survey I just got out, um, about 85% of us believe this is the toughest stage of innovation. And I think we've, you know, we recognize ideating, getting things validated is very tough work too, but I think um, this topic that we're covering today probably gets very short shrift and it's almost like an even third of when um, scale goes wrong, where does it go wrong? Um, oftentimes it's, you know, we just didn't hit our business objectives. Other times it's, we didn't hit our timelines. Other times we didn't hit our financials. And so it's kind of an even bucket of mistakes um, that happen when we don't scale. And we'll go to the next one. Uh, I know we didn't uh, do this purposely for a webcast, but we have, uh, three or four tools in our new book that's coming out. Um, we're talking about the middle column here today. And I think, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think it's World Economic Forum that says, you know, scaling is actually happening when you're getting more than 40% growth. Um, so we're talking about, you know, steep, steep jumps in growth. Oftentimes, if you look at SaaS companies, um, that they oftentimes use the term 10x. But there are very different behaviors between launch stage, uh, scaled stage, and this middle stage called scaling and growth. So we'll hopefully cover some of this off today. We always love to do uh, one collage or another that seems to get good digital traction. And we've actually looked at 25 contributing factors that do lead to scaling in innovation. And we've got a little color-coded process here in terms of just the seven different buckets of, of factors. And I think our panelists are all extraordinarily capable of covering all seven of these off today. So um, I won't, uh, we're offering this webcast after, so don't write madly at home. Um, I did send a survey out. Uh, we love to have some gravitas behind our uh, opinions. And so uh, the early results have just teased out a couple things here. What do we call this thing called corporate innovation growth? Because I think if you talk to a startup, uh, they have their very comfortable nomenclature. 
Um, for us, what's happening, number one and number two is commercialization, people like to call it. The second most popular uh, one is called scaling up. So um, I'm not too sure if the people speak, but um, certainly it's a topic that gets covered off a lot within startups and scale-ups to a lesser extent, not a lot within corporate innovation. And as we, we see this time period, it can vary anywhere between eight months to you know nearly three years in terms of when you're in this phase, what are those set of behaviors you need to be doing? So the other thing we wanted to do is, is bring up the, something that we know is true uh, as we tempered our views of growth in earlier with is growth the only metric, you know, maybe sustainability, excuse me, sustained profitability is just as good as growth. And maybe you reach, you know, sort of the saturation point in certain sectors. So we like to look at stats from other people as well. And so there was one that talked about the fastest growing brand. But once again, you know, over the last five years or so, things that grow quickly sometimes can reach maturity and stop growing, but still be unbelievably successful. So we want to make sure that everybody is on the same page with things like number one being WeChat. Some companies that are also number 11 is Netflix. Uh, very different in terms of the, uh, the, the um, industry from the outside, and yet, you know, the notion of scale, maybe it has to do with the ability to be a platform and have a play that's technology-based. NVIDIA, everybody talks about AI and the kind of, they used to call it Intel inside. Now it's sort of like NVIDIA inside, and so NVIDIA. And so um, questions like that come to our minds that, we're, that are provocative to us. Um, you know, what role would technology play? And then we always wonder about China, you know, whether it's WeChat or Huawei or the others, you know, there's this, this feeling that the sense of growth might be coming from regions all over the world. It might be Copenhagen, you know, in Denmark and the Nordics, because we've got, we've got some uh, representation there today. It might be Africa, like we had last time. We don't know. And so the question is also globally. And then once again, we looked at, you know, a couple of years ago, what was viewed as fastest growing in terms of brands and, you know, Gucci, there's something, you know, Tesla. So uh, we know that some of these brands are growing quickly. And so what will it look like two years from now is the question. And so I'd like to bring on Kent Lawson. And one of the things that I'll do is we'll talk about <laughs> scale and growth and speed and all of the above. And one of the things I'd like to do is introduce Kent. Right now, you're with Blue Cross Blue Shield. You and I met years ago when you were at IDEO and we were doing this humbly named project, The Future of Healthcare. We decided it might have been embarrassingly more than 15 years ago uh, that we've known each other. And you've also been an AbV and at IDEO. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and then um, pick a topic that you'd like to talk about from this first round. Thanks, Andrea. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, it's great to be with you. And um, uh, so my background is in industrial design. Uh, and, uh, you know, early on fell in love with uh, sort of the intersection of design and healthcare and have spent most of my career there uh, trying to uh, create the future of healthcare. Don't think we're there yet, uh, but uh, give me a couple more years and, and maybe we'll get there. Um, you know, as you were setting this up, I, I kept on thinking back to my time at IDEO, uh, run, uh, leading the health and wellness practice there. Um, one of the things that drove me nuts about, uh, about consulting at IDEO and about, um, uh, about uh, you know, uh, the work that we did there, we would come up with, we'd do the research, we'd do the hard work, we'd do the heavy lifting, and we would come up with you know, we were sure market changing, industry changing solutions. 
and we would uh, we would hand these beautiful babies over to our clients, mostly you know multi billion dollar corporations, uh, multi billion dollar and you know with legacy um, legacy cultures. Um, we'd hand these beautiful babies over to uh, those clients, and they would some somehow disappear into the ether of that uh, corporation. And uh, one of two things would happen: either number one, uh, this beautiful baby that we handed over would show up in the market maybe five or six years later and look nothing like what we had handed originally to our clients, or number two, that beautiful baby would just go you know, be handed over to the corporation and then it would just disappear. Never to be seen on the market, never to be seen um, in, in the industry or in the world. And that always bugged me because we, we were certain that there was something there, that there was innovation, you know, and innovation there because we had the evidence to prove it. We had the users, um, the users and the customers uh, feedback that this was something special, that this was actually something that was going to change sort of the face of their business. And, uh, and what we found is oftentimes, you know, scaling innovation, uh, scaling innovation in a small group of people that were really excited about change and had the attitude of sort of what, what was possible was a lot different than uh, trying to implement any change or any innovation inside a legacy environment or a legacy culture where people are um, more interested in stock price or more interested in uh, keeping their bonus uh, either at what it was last year or a little bit better this year um, and not interested in rocking the boat or uh, you know, uh, creating uh, a, different, um, a, a different way to work inside. And so uh, that was always interesting, interesting to me and, and very frustrating. But I think, you know, uh, your, your prompt here is corporate versus startup scale. And I think uh, that's the difference is attitude and culture. Um, so the startup, when you're working in a startup, I've worked in a number of those. Um, it's all about the, uh, the art of possible. And, you know, the world looks rosy and we can do anything and we can change we can change the world while, while in the corporate environment, it's all about keeping the performance engine humming and making sure that the, you know, the profitability is still there. Don't change, don't rock the boat and make sure our stock price uh, continues to inch up. So let's now be positive around this because clearly, <laughs> well, clearly you're working for a very large organization now and you have in the past, you know, since those days. So sure. um, we always say we have to be fighting the good fight. You know, the people who, who have the answers to how to drive innovation, who work within corporations, which is mostly, you know, all of us, we've had that, um, that challenge. So, so let's be positive now. Like, what does it take? What are two or three um, ideas that you share in terms of, you know, when you can yeah. trip that and, 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 and change that? Yeah, thanks, uh, Andrea. I think number one, um, number one, if you're looking to make massive change inside of these legacy environments or cultures, I think what you first need to do is find your tribe. You need to find the people that are geared toward, you know, a positive attitude or a positive um, uh, culture or, you know, a, a, a zest or a lust for change. Find those people. And um, when I was working in pharma at AbbVie, um, one of the things I did is I put together a presentation on innovation, right? 
and on change and on you know bringing human-centered design into pharmaceuticals. And uh, I would have typically, you know, I'd give these presentations and then typically five or 10 or 15 people would come up and sort of self-select, right? And say, wow, that was cool. I wanna be a part of this. And so make sure you, you grab those people and make sure you, they become your tribe because they will be your tribe for change. And so, um, you know, uh, influence them and, uh, and make sure that, that uh, you're getting together occasionally and sort of helping you become your own support group, right? Uh, so uh, each other, help each other make that change and sort of um, encourage them to keep going. The other thing I think is, you know, and this goes back to your blitz scaling slide, uh, I have to argue with his number seven, ignore your customers. And I, I understand what he was saying. Ignore your customers. Don't listen to what they're saying or what they're demanding. But what you need to do is go out, see how your customers actually live. Um, don't listen to what they say, but look at what they do. Look at how they behave in their, in their lives. Um, what are they doing at home that is driving um, their, whether it's healthcare change or their digital life or their, you know, the way they consume entertainment, whatever it is, um, get into their homes and see how they're, they're doing this. And um, don't listen to what they say because they don't have the language for the future, but really look and see what they're doing and that will guide you to the future. Well, I love that notion that people don't have the language for the future. Um, you're being a bit humble in that I view you as one of the pioneers of being able to get this completely right at scale. I mean, you're one of the people who has taken not just healthcare, but human-centered design and really applied it in brilliant ways throughout your industry and touched many lives. So um, with a little bit of humble bragging, I wonder if you would, and also without saying anything specific, would you share an experience with us of how you've make it, made it work? Because as I said, we view you as a pioneer in, in really getting this right. Absolutely, and thank you for that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> um, so I would say uh, one sort of war story, um, uh, you know, and this, I'll, I'll go back to my AbbVie days because that was, you know, it was a 126 year old uh, legacy culture. And uh, finding your tribe, number one, and then getting out to see your customers or your patients. Um, I was working in uh, South America with the general managers of our, uh, of our South American um, uh, country uh, teams. And the general, one of the general managers in Argentina, we went out to uh, patients' homes and we were working on a project around the injection experience. So how can we improve the injection experience? And the general manager in Argentina was actually a, um, a licensed endocrinologist. And we went into the home of a person uh, that had diabetes and we sat at her table and listened to her and you know, sort of toured her home. And we sat there for uh, two hours, a little over two hours. We ate cake because she had made cake for us. And um, it was, it was a, an amazing experience. And as we were coming out of her home and driving back to the office, um, this uh, endocrinologist says to me, I learned more in those two hours than I learned in my nine years of practice and all of my years of medical school. And it just, you know, with our doctors and with our, with our business colleagues, we just don't know how people, how people live and how people uh, 
think and how they act. And so we need to get out there and see that and we'll learn more than we can possibly imagine. Well, thank you for that. And um, we, we were trying to buy you the extra minute. I think we did. Um, and also at the end, we'll have a bit of a round robin and would love to talk later, um, you know, if you can think of maybe one tool that you can suggest to the, everybody in our community that it, that's just useful in addition to this getting out and, and, and living, you know, observing and, and experiencing people. So this is incredible. Great. Thank you, Kent. Thank we you. definitely could have gone on longer, but I'll now turn it over to Sean to introduce Anne. Yeah, we're going to pivot to the people side of things, which uh, I've experienced firsthand where working within change companies uh, or change teams within bigger organizations, sometimes you face the, there's the change teams and the operating teams and how do they, how do they meet together? But um, I want to introduce Anne Hargrave. She's principal of Mindset. She comes to us by way of Boston, I think today, unless you're traveling. Um, and we were just on beforehand. She has an embarrassing amount of interesting stuff going on in her personal life. We're going to keep it professional today, though, and actually just talk about some of your specialty in terms of scaling HR departments. You've, uh, you've worked inside a variety of different ones. I saw Keurig. I saw um, something. There was a soup company, Kettle Cuisine, I think, that um, you'd worked in. I think you've also worked at Venture Capitalists and Publishing. And I find this whole arena around um, employee engagement and kind of aligning purpose and profit and people um, to be really interesting. So have I, have I left any key details out of your bio here, Ann? No, I don't think so. Thanks, Sean. Um, I think the only thing I could throw in there right now is as a consultant, I work with companies of all sizes. So a lot of startups, corporate companies, mid-size, and I think those are really useful for today's discussion. So I'll share some of all of those. Well, I think that's an interesting uh, foray into your first question, because um, as I mentioned off the top, I find a lot of the discussion around scale to be around startups. You're in a company of 20 people, 30 people, and you're 12 months old. Um, more of our focus today is around corporate innovation in terms of, okay, I'm in a company of well over 50 people. How do they function differently from a people standpoint in this, this crazy high growth stage? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting things around that. I'm, I'm glad you were interested in that because it's my, my life's work here is to go around and talk to companies about how to get it right, how to get the scaling right. And it's probably the most fun thing I do, but it's the most interesting thing I do because a lot of times when you bring to the attention, you know, bring to CEOs or CFOs or whoever you're talking to, depending on the type of company you're in, Thing. These are the things that are happening. Most of the problems that we find are in that middle zone. So it's not during the startup stage. It's when they get to that mid-sized stage and they're ready to do something really big. They're ready to either commercialize or, or go public or put something out in the marketplace, launch their product. And that's when they start to have these hiccups. And the hiccups, I think, are, it's, it's interesting to me. What I have found is when you are in a startup company and you are... 35 people, 20 people, everybody talks to everybody every day. Everybody knows everybody. Um, everybody, or at least most of the people have been there from day one, they completely understand the mission. They know exactly um, where they're going on the map and they've decided together how they're going to get there. What happens when you start getting into this more corporate size or blending of cultures or you know mergers and acquisitions, when you get to those different phases, 
Um, people are not talking to each other every day anymore. They may not know each other. They may know somebody's name, but they don't understand their role or the responsibility. And it's really where the communication breakdown stops. So they don't have processes in place to, to let everybody know what's going on. And to kind of go back to some of the things Kent has said, I'm all about culture. I think the word has actually been used so much it's become somewhat nebulous. People don't know exactly what culture is anymore, but really it's the way people behave, it's the way they act, it's the way they treat each other. And, you know, again, kind of covering some of what Kent was talking about and finding the right people. I think it's really important if you are in a business that is going to scale their product or scale their service, if you don't have employees that you can also scale at the same time that aren't capable of growing, that aren't capable of going in several different directions, um, being able to adjust to change, and then you're not talking to them through the entire process, you don't have that communication process in place, you start to lose uh, people's interest, you lose their, their focus, um, they get frustrated, they feel like they're left out, they no longer feel the mission and the purpose, and then their decision-making uh, starts to go by the wayside. But in addition to that, you start getting people doing their job in somewhat of a, a funnel, and they are doing things through compliance instead of through commitment. And that changes everything when it comes to innovation. When you are in a really mature company, you can go out and just do what's in your, you know, your line of sight. You can do it really well, and you can get top-down information, and it's, it's all going to go fine. You'll be able to sustain. But when you want innovation, when you want growth, when you want creativity spurred, and you don't have people talking to each other, those things die. And it's funny. I'm not sure if I covered that one. Well, no, it's, I mean, uh, you've almost covered three questions in one, which is great. So now I'm like, on oh, the great. Question <laughs> we'll cover our nine minute segment off here adequately, I think. So um, I was going to say a lot of times, uh, you know, the stage acts within this world or sphere make the sound so simple. And I think for all of us that are being part of it, you know, this, particularly the people side of this, people, some people like to resist change. Some people are new to the company because you've just hired a whole bunch of people to actually make that change happen and how do they act in that culture um are there patterns in terms of when you you get out of that pilot stage and into scale stage that repeatedly you see over and over again um companies fail at uh yeah there's a few actually that's usually when i get called into a company is when they're about to go to that stage and they're having problems and um, I tell every company that I walk into, if you're having business problems, you're having people problems because the people are the ones that drive the business. And uh, communication is a big part of that. Bringing people in, um, as you're growing and you're in that stage, you're bringing a lot of new people in and typically at high rates. Um, the company that I'm sitting in today, this is one of my clients, in fact, and uh, we're hiring at a pretty high clip. They're ready to go into commercialization and they were starting to have problems at that stage. And it's, it's kind of twofold. Part of it is the communication between the people in the business, whether they've been there since day one or whether they've been there, you know, day 500 or 1,000. But as you're bringing people into the business, there are two things that really need to happen. Um, I always say onboarding begins at the first phone call. Um, if you are not starting your onboarding process with mission and vision with the very first phone screen, then you're missing a severe opportunity, very important opportunity to get that, that mindset of the you know, possible employee to come in and really drive innovation, creativity, and be bought in. You know, buy-in is, is 
good decision-making and commitment. Once you bring that employee in, it's so important to not just bring them into where you are and to talk to them about where you're going. I think one of the big misses of companies at this stage, because they're almost relieved to be out of startup stage, that they almost lose that fire and what happened there, and they don't bring people along the way from inception to where they are now. So they don't talk enough about the past and how they got there and use um, onboarding as a form of storytelling to get people involved in the story and want to be part of the story and want to be part of the next chapter. And uh, we did some really great things. Keurig is probably my, my favorite example of that. And if, if you'd like me to elaborate there, I will. If not, I want to make sure I'm staying on track for you. I think you're in the sharing an experience. And I love the fact you're choosing Keurig because I've always wondered okay. what happens between uh, behind the wizard, behind the curtain in that company. So. Um, yeah, that, that company is a juggernaut and um, probably the best experience of my life. And I've had a lot of really wonderful ones, so that says a lot. Um, I'll, I'll go into the, I could give you lots of stories back here, but we'll stick with the, the people side of it at the beginning. I noticed when we were bringing people into Keurig, I was employee 144 at Keurig. So we were at, um, you know, a pivotal stage. We were at that point where things were starting to be processed. People that were coming out of the startup stage were resisting the process stage with a little more rules and regulations. They didn't want bureaucracy, um, but we didn't want anarchy either, so we had to come up with something. And then we have new people coming in, and those new people were being onboarded at that stage. That stage made sense to them, and they didn't understand the resistance of the people that had been there for a long time. And that's where the, the relationship breaks down. That's where the communication breaks down. And if you don't figure out how to kind of blend those two things together from day one, then you miss a really big opportunity to connect those people and to use the talent that you had and the talent that you're getting to create what's going to move you into the next phase. So um, I guess the best example of that is we, we put together an onboarding program that included your, your storytelling and journey through the past and, you know, along with a timeline that went along the entire wall of our our space where you could see from inception to where we are today with a lot of empty space on that timeline so that they felt like they could write themselves into the story somewhere. But we had, um, Dick Sweeney was one of the co-founders of Keurig. We had him get up, uh, no matter how many employees we had, if it were two employees or if it were 50 employees coming in that particular quarter, and he would give a history of Keurig from how it started with the salad dressing cup and the heat gun sealing the lid and, you know, they had the stories were amazing. You know, they would throw a basketball into the hoop to see who got paid one week. And, and those types of stories really brought people to how we got there and where we are and, and what our mission was. And the two other sessions we had, we actually had three sessions, um, uh, four in total. So one of the other sessions was a, um, you walk through the archive room from the very first prototype of a brewer to where we were today. And instead of looking at, hey, these are our products today and, and these are the things we want you to try to innovate and, and make better, look at how we've gotten here. Don't look at, oh my gosh, how do I make this great product better? Look at all of the, the fails and the crazy designs and the things that worked and the things that didn't and how we learned because those are the things you're going to apply to the next, the next phases of our company. The other course was a marketing course. It was all about our consumer and where that product was going to end up. 
It was about our industry. It was about the landscape, our competitors. It was about how we speak to our customer and what our demographics were and, um, and who we were outside of the company so that they could make decisions based on that. And then our fourth one, which I was well known for personally, was our respectful workplace session. So that was our four-part four series. Respectful workplace was all about our culture, who we are, how we treat each other, how we communicate, how we work through conflict, how we work through change, and what we expected from everybody um, from the day they walked in the door to the day they walked out of the door. So we talked about product life cycle. We talked about employee life cycle. We talked about our history, and we talked about our future all at once. I mean, it's, Can I use my nine minutes, Sean? No, it's a great example, but it's a great example, though, in terms of just like companies actually having a soul and not kind of acting like the, the you know, Acme company uh, that could be just the same as the uh, company down the street. Uh, I'm going to um, throw it over to uh, Andrew again, but uh, we're going to have a round the horn at the end. So think about just how the people side balances off with the other three discussions we're having, and we'll talk toward the end. It was really interesting, and I think, once again, I'm going to also request it, um, and at the end, that we talk about, you know, for the whole community, what one tool where they might start, because this was really super interesting about, you know, how, how to blend a culture of uh, the inception of a company through to its various growth stages. It was really interesting. So I'd like to introduce now and welcome Stina, is it Jorgensen? Yes. And um, I have uh, worked with Stina again. I'm feeling like um, we've got this global uh, future-proofing community. You can tell a little bit about, you come from both NeCredit and Danske Bank, and now you have your own startup called dreamplan.io. Tell us what you want us to know about your perspective from you know, your past employers and companies about growth. Sure. So in in my in the last company I was in, Nucredit, uh, the largest bank in Denmark, I was responsible for the digital innovation department. And that's always quite a challenge to have a, a department call something with innovation, right? Because people are going to look at you as a, as a theater puppet, I think, a lot these days because it's been so used and, and misused, um, the term. So my experience in that role was, and I think I'm building very much on top of, of what Ken said and what Anne said, that, that when it came down to actually being successful with scaling what ideas we were, we were cultivating, we found that if we had had a business owner on board from the very beginning, someone who had uh, maybe not thought up the idea, but had, who had been part of becoming or been willing to, to participate in workshops very early on when, when we maybe only had uh, a customer inquiry into something or something we had observed in one of the branches that, that was failing or wasn't sufficient or was obviously a, a point of irritation for the customer. When we had found someone in the business unit that were willing to spend maybe just one hour, two hours uh, brainstorming with us that person would become our ambassador and would be fighting for us alongside with us uh, over, over the course of the project or the, or the, the assignment. And what we found, we, we found these people by looking into who are good networkers. So quite a few, quite a lot of the times, these would not be the most brilliant colleagues who would be promoted on the intranet or who would be the top, top hundred in the, in the talent pool or whatever. They would be the guys who would know guys who would know who would had maybe started in a branch and then they would move into headquarters and they would be someone's secretary maybe or someone and they would have this big network of 
of people internally in the company. And they would have so much on the ground to contribute with. And once you had had those guys on board, they would, they would be the ones who would actually help us uh, gain trust in the rest of the organization. So that would be one thing to get that networking person on board really, really early on in, in also the, in the innovation process itself in the, in the development of, of the idea. So that would be one thing. And what would be difficult in that respect would be that these people would often be very, very busy, obviously. So taking time out to join us and join the project would be a challenge in and of itself. And so what we would try to do would be to find out how could we make some kind of very small business case is not the right word, but to already very early on in the process, process uh, demonstrate the the possible financial benefit of doing this and thereby sort of by the by hours uh, of this person so talking talking to the the actual hardcore kpis uh, in their management uh, team and then get them to work with us so that would be one thing we would do and the other thing we would do would be to do a very very uh, structured process so we would call it three 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 which would symbolize three days, three weeks, three months. And so they would, the managers uh, the, in the business units would know that if they had committed uh, to us and to develop this idea, and they had this very enthusiastic employee who would go into this with all her, his or her uh, passion and ask to be part of the project, then they would only need to commit three days. And after the three days, they would, and they, those three days would be a very, there would be a very structure, structure, structured, diary for or agenda for each day and so they would know and have feedback from the feedback from the employee at the end of the third day saying this is really worth my time i would like to continue with this uh, and then they would be allowed maybe to take another three weeks and in and and in the end of course we would scale the the innovation project from very from the idea to actually prototype prototyping and implementing in, in the branches. And I found that that quite a few times, and this is where, this is my learning from this, quite a few times I would just avoid that. Even if it was a principle, I would still just say, okay, doesn't matter, it's a good idea. There's a really brilliant business case here. I know I'm going to convince management once I've shown that this is a good thing to do. And every time I wouldn't be successful in actually scaling afterwards because nobody would really have seen the customer interaction with me or would have uh, felt that this was part of the organization that they, they were running and running really well at a bank. They're doing really well in the bank, right? So, it's, so, so they're very focused on actually running the existing business. Um, so yeah, so, so being very early on in, in actually writing up some sort of a business case and also having a very structured process, but most importantly, getting people from the business units on board from the very beginning so that they feel uh, an ambassadorship uh, and an ownership from the very beginning. So this is super interesting, uh, not only because it, it reinforces a set of questions that Sean and I have been looking at for a year plus, but, it, but also, um, there's a different profile, it sounds like, for someone who will, first of all, initiate an idea, um, ambassador that I'd be the ambassador for that idea. And it sounds like, I know we've looked at a lot of companies that even do a lot of uh, mapping of social sentiment analysis of 
who is the connector versus who is the vice president, executive vice president. And as you said, it's not necessarily the title as much as this connectivity. And, and that's a different dimension and profile than, we're, than some companies might know how to find or measure. So I think that's it, super interesting. I think that's the, I, because I had, and so this is the little story maybe about one of the companies that I found that there was a, a big round of, of um, I had to lay, lay off people, right? And some of my very best ambassadors were laid off because they were not the, the people who were doing, like themselves doing the more business for the company. But I would still argue that if you looked at what they benefited the company, that they would do, they would actually nurture the very difficult clients that, that uh, maybe you wouldn't make so much money on them uh, right now on the paper, but the fact that when they had been laid off, that their colleagues had to handle the difficult clients and, and that would be a downside for the company. So I think the, the fact that we're not very good at measuring how much how people who understand to network and who understands who have the kind of social skills where they can point you in the right direction if you need you need the the lawyer who is more flexible in term and understands digital so who is that of all the lawyers in the company or so so that would be a different lawyer than the the lawyer that would be appointed to your project because your project would be a prestigious project because an innovation project so so i'm i'm we need to kind of invent, or I hope it's already invented, but not implemented yet. We need to find ways to measure uh, the value of net of people who are brilliant at networking, because I find that that as that's over overlooked in in a lot of com big companies. That's fantastic, and I'm hoping that when we do the round robin, you'll give us uh, perhaps the one the short sentence. These are at the end; it's kind of a short sentence, right? Of why you just decided to begin your own company. We would love to hear of that very quick elevator pitch of, of that because we'd love to support you in what you're doing next. So thank you, Stina, and we'll be back to you in just a little bit. So back to you, Sean. All right, uh, we've got like the uh, the anchorman part, I guess, here, Jed. Uh, I've known Jed for God, way too long. I pre presume we had a cup of coffee at Procter & Gamble together, and I know Jed's an interesting, uh, first of all, he's executive VP for marketing and growth at EQ Works, which is a leading kind of audience platform. Um, and previous to that, he was the uh, founder of Tap Mobile, which is one of the leading marketing, uh, mobile marketing companies in Canada. So he's done startup, he's done small stuff, but you've also been an employee of Bell, uh, which is Canada's biggest mobility company. You've been an employee of Microsoft, you've been in media, and obviously we spent some time in CPG together. Um, I don't know if I've any missed anything off the list, but beyond being a big kind of person in the growth scene of Toronto and being both a corporate and a startup person, you're probably the ideal person to ask the question, like what's the difference between scale and entrepreneurship and scale in corporate life? Um, sure. I, I mean, it's, it's such a big topic. I'm going to just focus on a couple of elements and hopefully leave people with something tangible. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, I, I think the big challenge for a startup is it comes down to two things. One is um, being very strategic while at the same time worrying about revenue and profitability. So there is a real challenge for a lot of startups um, uh, in terms of being well capitalized, many are not. And so oftentimes they're chasing revenue as a means of survival and it's revenue that oftentimes isn't very strategic. 
And I think it leads to the second point. And the, and the second point is, <clears throat> and there's a wonderful idea um, from a podcast called Starting Greatness. And it's a bit really about product market fit. And really it's this whole idea that the challenge for a startup is really finding strong product market fit. And what most companies invariably do is they try to scale before they've actually proven product market fit. And so there's this idea, um, not my own, I don't have any of my own original ideas, but there's this concept of spending a lot of time on insight development. Find a niche, find a set of customers, find a segment for whom um, you, they are desperate for your solution. And if you cannot find those that are desperate for your solution, you're probably not gonna really find optimal product fit. And then ultimately, <coughs> ultimately what happens is when people try to scale, having skipped over that critical step, essentially what they're doing is they're spending money to overcome objections as opposed to actually truly scaling. And I think, um, you know, Anne spoke of it even from like the human side. So this concept of, um, you know, compliance versus commitment, which I think is really powerful. And one could easily understand taking away Anne's ideas <coughs> that if you have strong insight development, strong product market fit, you've identified people that are desperate your, for your solution, it's much easier for scale because what the data also shows from a scaling standpoint is it's really favorable word of mouth we talked earlier, Andrea, both you and um, Sean and Andrea talked about this notion of scale as being over 40% annual growth. That growth really happens when basically people are talking to people about the solution that you provide. And no amount of money can drive that kind of scale. So again, the, the key point is strong insight development that really reinforces product market fit so that you're not actually scaling to overcome objections but rather you're scaling in order to spread word of mouth and spread your story. I've got a question for you, just because uh, you almost, uh, you said people kind of spend too early, spend too much to overcome their mistakes. Oftentimes I find people, we talk about scale and being in the scaling moment, but it's almost backward looking, like almost like at a game of golf, where did I go wrong? And people look back going, oh, we scaled too early or whatever. Any advice in terms of how do you know when you're in scaling mode? Like, is there, um, is it back to your product market fit? But like, is there something that says, yes, I am now ready to scale. And then also, how do you know when you've got like traction? How do you know when you've actually maybe aren't in scale anymore and you're about to be in the maturity phase? Yeah, I'll do my best to answer the question. I think, again, you can look at it from multiple standpoints. I, for the most part, wear a sales hat when I walk into the office every day. To me, the idea that we're, we're achieving scale or that our efforts at driving growth are scaling, for me, fall into, again, and I think this is easy to score, we take a look at our inbound leads. So if we're getting more phone calls in as opposed to making phone calls out, again, that goes back to proving the point around word of mouth. It's more economical, it's more cost effective because people have heard our story from other people. I think the other thing is there's pattern recognition. So are we actually, <coughs> excuse me, um, selling to multiple customers within a vertical? Are we actually selling the same product over and over again with minimal customization? Because I think that's ultimately where scale comes in. Not every company has the luxury of selling a box product where 
effectively it's the same for every single user. But to the extent that the core part of the product, we're in essentially data and software development. So we're able to always customize what we do. However, if we customize for every employee, for every customer, we don't have a scalable solution. So when we start getting inbound leads asking for the same solution, it goes back to, again, that first point, which is understand the problem that folks are desperate to solve. And if we can start seeing a lot of traction against those, whether it be inbound on the outbound side, it could be shorter sales cycles, higher conversion rates. You know, at the end of the day, it is kind of crass because a lot of us have um, a higher order motivation for what we do. But if your client is um, within a public company, and I think um, folks around the table have spoken to that, um, it's about sell more stuff, make more money and drive profitability. A lot of the companies that were listed on Andrea's chart about some of the fastest growing companies, if they're public companies, we can talk about brand equity, we can talk about um, blitz scaling, we can talk about all this stuff, but for the most part, we can ignore dual class structures for a moment, but they're ultimately responsible to their shareholders. So I think that if you can demonstrate, you know, metrics that are easy to follow amongst larger teams, and talked about the huge amount of hiring that she's doing for her current client right now, or even back at Keurig. But if you can start to see that flywheel take effect, and then all of a sudden, again, I, I just use this expression of rinse and repeat, which isn't designed to take away from either the complexity or the enjoyment of work, but if stuff starts to happen over and over again, um, either in, um, inbound or outbound, I think that's proof of both product market fit and when your efforts at scale are actually working. I think there's a, one maybe final question before we kind of have our free for all, Jed. I think as much as, you know, the growth hackers of the world make this seem like this crazy, yeah. let's just throw stuff at the wall. I mean, it's a real discipline scale, isn't it? And I think in exchanging notes before our call today, you and your previous life have, have used a couple of different things that kind of made your company scale at the time. You wanna uh, talk to one or two of them briefly? Sure, I'll talk about sort of the good and the bad. The good was, you know, when we, when we started Tap Mobile, we were relatively unknown. Um, people, um, buyers of our solutions knew that more and more time was being spent on mobile phones. A lot of marketers were quite skeptical as to the efficacy. Just because folks are on phones, are they actually going to transact? Is it a favorable ROI? So um, we listened. And what most were saying was that they lacked data in order to support a decision. I think it was made um, perhaps by Anne or Andrea reinforced it, but the idea that people who are sitting within a job <coughs> have an aversion to loss. If someone is gonna do something different, they are risking the status quo and putting the status quo at risk is scary for a lot of people. If you live in a town or a city where your company happens to be the major employer, you know, um, you don't want to put your job at risk. There's the old adage, no one got fired for buying IBM. The reality is we needed to give people currency that they could use internally in order to sell what was a new idea or breaking from tradition. So what we happened to do was we ended up authoring the largest mobile study of its kind for three years. We had large corporations, large banks, large software companies all buy the research from us. What that did was it solved a problem for our customer who was the decision maker. They needed more data, we gave them more data and it allowed them to then sell ideas. 
in the event that the idea didn't work, at least they had something to fall back on. So as to say, well, we use the available data. And frankly, that's what growth hacking really is. Growth hacking is taking the available data, making a quick decision and having um, standard operating procedures or having things in place that tell you when you're off the rails and when your decision was a bad decision so that you can adjust. And hopefully, you know, we, we heard about the 333 concept. Hopefully there's this, con this idea that you don't waste too much time and you don't waste too much money. On the other hand, at my current company, which acquired the company I founded, what we're finding right now is we have a whole mix of customers that are buying our solution. So essentially where we're at is we want to scale faster. So what we're doing is we're beginning to go back to that insight development. We've, we've identified five different types of buying groups. And within that, we're trying to develop personas so to really understand what each one of those people care about. We're taking a methodical approach whereby we've identified one vertical. We've identified a number of decision makers within that vertical. And frankly, we're grinding it out. My biggest fear is we're not going to get the answers quick enough. And that is really frightening. So what we're trying to do is learn fast. Um, you know, we, we've heard from from Anne, we've heard from others, you know, how do you find good communicators, good networkers within the company who can champion the cause and, and sort of get more stuff done quickly? Uh, um, it didn't say that too eloquently, but really what we're just trying to do is prove hypotheses really quickly, get to quick yeses, quick noes, and then move on. So even, you know, we did it once really well, but now we've got a robust data set and a robust software platform that can do a lot we've got to find out the biggest pain points for the biggest addressable market and then really understand how to sell consistently so that we can scale. And that's how we're attacking that problem. Uh, powerful examples. And I love this kind of yin and yang of, you know, uh, learn, uh, go broad, I guess, but do it fast. Uh, it is a, a yin and yang of um, scale. I'm going to throw it back out to Andrea and I guess we're going to have a bit of a group fest here. Yeah, I think the best way to do this, because I, I was madly trying to keep some red threads going myself in terms of um, incredible takeaways. So rather than Sean and Andrea trying to do this, would you mind each of you doing a, you know, no more than a minute takeaway, either from something someone else said or a word of wisdom that you'd like to share with the future-proofing audience? I'm, I'm, I think we'll go in the same order just so people can kind of get their thoughts together, which means, Kent, um, would you be ready to give us a minute or less of uh, something that you observed or some wisdom you'd like to share? Absolutely. Thanks, Andrea. Um, the, the thing that sort of knocked me out was uh, Anne saying, you know, find the employees that scale. And if you're not scaling the employees as you're scaling the business, you're going to lose. Loved that. And then also Jed mentioned uh, Anne's, uh, Anne's uh, uh, notion, uh, compliance versus commitment. That's what, it, that's what it's all about, right? It's um, uh, those that want to be compliant, uh, get out of the way. <laughs> uh, though you want to find the ones with commitment and, and start running with them. So love it. I, and by the way, I also love Stina's 333. That, that was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal all of that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, this is what we mean by this community. Yeah. I hope we all become uh, vast networkers based on all this information. So thanks for that, yes. Ken, and thanks for joining us. It was super inspiring. Uh, let's start, go to Anne, a minute or less of, of insights or something that you forgot to mention that you'd like to share. Oh, I'm challenged to do a minute of anything, but 
I'm actually going to jump off of some things that Jed said. I, I learned something from everybody that spoke today, but um, he talked a lot about you know, some, I guess he kind of talked a little bit about communication and directness and accountability and transparency. And when I talked about culture of growth and creativity and innovation, there's always conflict. There's always um, a problem. There's always change that has to happen. And if you're not really talking to people, um, they're selecting and developing and encouraging and, and working with people on directness, transparency, and accountability, then you're really not going to go anywhere. And you need to know exactly what's going on and challenge people. So that's, I guess, my Super minute. helpful. I Super helpful. Uh, Stina, I, I asked you to, to save the a little bit of a commercial for about uh, why you started DreamPlan.io. Um, would you mind giving us that? Just quickly. Well, um, in in the banks that I work, there's been a lot of focus on high net worth uh, customers and servicing and and making sure that they uh, they had an overview over their finances throughout their life, and through the data we have available and digital and, and machine learning, we would be able to do that for retail customers as well. But the drive was not sufficient within the banks for this to be top of the agenda. And I think there's a financial inclusion question that just needed to be answered uh, as well as a financial one, both for the banks and for the customers. So I thought there was a really sweet spot where I could find my passion and I have. So that's- uh, That's great. And, and I'll say something uh, before we ask Jed the same minute or less. Um, we have representation from Chicago, Toronto, Copenhagen, and Boston. And I'm just putting it in that um, Sean and I gave an extra minute to everybody that said that our future proofing tour, book tour, could go to those regions. So um, you all owe us at least one location, and you're hap we're happy to collaborate with you in your, in your, uh, in your cities because we're doing, we're doing the world tour starting next quarter. Uh, so thank you, and we hope to see you in Copenhagen again soon. Uh, Jed, minute or less, you'll uh, bring it all home here as the anchor man. I, um, I I read voraciously. I to me the idea is how do you take some of the big concepts shared by Stina, Kent, and yourself and Sean and make them actionable? Like that to me is always the most important thing. And so um, I, I want to leave sort of like with you know, th three sort of tactics. The first is templates. We've used a ton of templates in order to um, systematize, um, to Anne's point, even sort of a code culture within the organization, because templates are a wonderful way of doing things consistently and transferring knowledge. Related to that is even this concept of standard operating procedures. Like, are there best practices? You know, we take a fairly humble approach, which is, there's always probably, um, sorry, there is likely a better way of doing things. Uh, there's always a way of improving. So uh, accepting within the culture that even if you have a standard operating procedure, it can be changed or modified by anyone in the organization. I sent a note to someone on my team. I asked her to update something. I said, there's gotta be a better way of doing this so I don't bug you. Just tell me a different way of working. And then the last is measure. And that's that feedback loop. So, you know, codify stuff, standardize stuff, but then measure it, find the optimal way of doing it so that you're not sort of, you know, doing half your day in analysis and not actually working on the business. Um, but this notion of how do you measure the templates, the SOPs, so that basically everyone feels as though they can collaborate and everyone feels as though they have an opportunity to make uh, the company bigger and better. 
Well, thank you for all of you. And uh, the panelists are, I mean, I would like to applaud. It was just incredibly spirited, uh, really provocative. And it went in directions we couldn't have anticipated, which is great. It didn't feel scripted. It felt very interactive. So um, we'll see you in Boston, Copenhagen, Toronto, and Chicago very soon. And thank you so much. You can go off video now. And thanks to everyone on the panel. That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so Sean. Yeah, I think a uh, way to go in terms of scaling our own business as we're talking about scaling, Andrew, just inviting ourselves into everybody's cities. I love it. Uh, it's very um, purposeful. Um, a couple of uh, last housekeeping things as we leave. Uh, we always love to ground whatever we've learned with some type of um, hopefully quantitative or qualitative insight. We do have a survey out now. Uh, we're asking a lot of questions. And truly, this time, it is a five-minute survey. Sometimes I say it's five minutes and it isn't. This is a five-minute survey. Hopefully you can go to the uh, scale barometer and um, tell us what you know about scale. It's going to the next slide. Um, as Andrea uh, so adroitly mentioned, we do have a book coming out and on leap day this year, we are getting our pre-order links out on wherever good books are sold. Um, we have six core messages to the world. Certainly you can learn about it at futureprovingnext.com, uh, the book. And then as well, if you uh, message us at hello at futureprovingnext.com, I will be happy to send you our pricey and just give you a glimpse of what um, the book is going to be all about. Next two webinars, um, you know, we do two a month. Uh, our first one in March will be around future readiness. Um, there have been very few attempts to actually audit and benchmark how somebody is ready for the future. Um, we've got an audit tool we think is really good and we want to share it with people and this will be our first public unveiling. And then we also are building a card deck, uh, an interactive card deck of the 52 leading business models of the future. Um, we've spent the last, I wanna say nine months evaluating what those are and we will put them into a fun, interesting format. So look forward to that. And I'll just say one last thing and then I'll let you uh, sign us off. But I thought it was really interesting what Jed said about templates, SOPs and measurement because that's what we're all about right now. We're hoping that the, uh, the book, you know, which has templates, standard operating procedures and measures will be a new interactive tool to introduce to the community um, so that we can kind of have an evergreen conversation about is it working? How do we change it? Because we would like to have our whole website and community be based on things that are really working to keep us ahead of change. So yeah, Jed's comment was music to my ears anyway, in terms of the approach we've taken. Um, um, templates are big. And then um, in terms of uh, the sign off, I think um, once again, I want to thank all of our guests for being on today. They um, each came at this topic from a different point of view, which is what we try to do every single episode. And I just love the fact that every one of them integrated the other viewpoints into it. And uh, I, I do spark to Jed's comment about at some point we got to take it out of webcast land and turn it into just real practical things that you can be doing with your business. I think that's a real core takeaway from, um, from any of our, our webcasts, but particularly on this one, since it's got so much, so many moving parts to it. So uh, as mentioned, I, I guess I'm closing it out for both of us uh, and all of our panel had a great time today. We got in close to an hour, which is always good for us. And, uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future.